This is an ABC podcast. Today, how a lack of midwives in northwest Tasmania has forced women to drive for hours to a maternity ward or rely on their partners to give birth. He was showing how to use the monitor, which monitors the baby movement, my contractions and everything. And he was telling me when to push, but I couldn't feel the contractions. So he was actually watching the monitor. Instead of being my birthing partner and being supporting me, he was my midwife. He was holding my legs while I pushed. He was taking my blood pressure. And the music festival, that's an ode to the quintessential Aussie motel. Um, but yeah, I love the whole baby's breath vibe and come and get a palmer and play pool out the back. It's, it's, it's really old school. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country. The eyes of the country have been on Alice Springs in recent weeks, with this crime situation there making national headlines. But another crisis is emerging, with fears the local healthcare system could be on the brink of collapse. Alice Springs reporter Charmaine Allison has this story. As a nurse in Alice Springs, Erin McKenzie often feels the weight of the world on her shoulders. The calls go out constantly. Need staff, need staff, need staff. You know, and around town, different clinics and things are shut because there's just not the staff. In her six years in the Red Centre, she's never seen the local healthcare system running on such skeleton staff. Clinics are hemorrhaging nurses and pressure is mounting on those left behind. Staff are burning out, people are leaving town. We've got friends, nurses' friends who are leaving. In the wake of the Alice Springs crime wave, there's concerns another crisis is looming. In recent weeks, two Aboriginal health clinics have had to shut their doors due to staff shortages. Practices are riddled with empty consulting rooms as peak bodies claim the town is down to just a third of GP numbers required. And according to Dr Sam Hurd, chair of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners in the NT, it's getting harder to attract new staff. If you go back a decade, we were taking maybe 50, 55 young doctors into GP training in the Territory, and this year it's seven, and they're all in Darwin. Advocates say alcohol fueled crime is a major culprit, burning out staff in town and driving away a fresh workforce. The Nurses' Union says the hospital is running on only 50% of its usual nursing numbers. And according to Kath Hatcher, NT branch secretary of the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation, there's little relief in sight. Approximately 22 new graduates were supposed to start in January and half. Half of them have uh, pulled out because they are frightened of the level of violence that they have seen on the media. It's a similar picture in the local emergency department, according to Australian Medical Association NT President Robert Parker. He says emergency staff have been exposed to high rates of trauma since NT liquor bans lapsed in July last year. This included a surge in domestic violence incidents, including a recent attempted beheading. Dr Parker says it's taking a toll on staff. But it's often quite emotionally confronting to see particularly young women and children who have been very damaged courtesy of alcohol. And then there's also the danger to staff and assaults on staff from inebriated individuals turning up in the ED. And yes, we've had medical students being attacked. We've had um, doctors being attacked. We've had places uh, ransacked. That's Dr Brent Pannell. He's been a GP in Alice Springs for 37 years. He says while crime is a problem in the town, he wouldn't want to work anywhere else. The work is 
is, I think, better than big city areas. You get to do a lot more. You, you see a lot more. But for the first time in his career, he's starting to rethink his future. I think we're all burnt out. It's just that we realise that uh, we have to continue on because the catch in not continuing on is that I'm going to close my shop and say, oh, look, I can't do this anymore. Uh, I don't want to do that. And all my other GPs don't want to do that either. But we're all discussing that issue about if you go, I'm going. While staff shortages are biting across the board, it's been particularly tough on primary care. Dr. Hurd says this is nothing new, claiming the sector has been slowly eroded over the past decade by the Medicare freeze and lower pay compared to other specialties. He says highly competitive salaries in the public health sector are also pulling doctors and nurses away from primary care. Income packages quite a lot more, maybe 100000 Um So that's big, big pressure to go in that direction. Some hope the workforce shortage will turn around once national attention over Alice Springs' crime dies down. Many also hope the reinstatement of alcohol bans across the NT will relieve pressures on burnt-out staff. But others say this crisis has been brewing for years and won't improve without serious systemic change. They're certainly not new problems that we're, we're dealing with. These problems have been bubbling for quite a while and we need to get them addressed. Alice Springs nurse Erin McKenzie ending that story there from Charmaine Allison. You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio. Women in northwest Tasmania are joining calls for better access to maternity services in regional areas. A lack of midwives in the region has meant many women are being forced to drive hours away to Hobart to have their babies. The lack of staff is affecting much of regional Australia and the Rural Doctors Association says solutions are needed before the issues get worse. Manika Champ has the story. Rebecca Grave and her husband Nick are settling into life as new parents at their home in northwest Tasmania. But their daughter Stella's entry into the world wasn't smooth sailing. Ms Graves' waters broke a few days after Christmas. She lives just 10 minutes from the northwest private hospital where all private and public babies are birthed in the region. She was meant to be induced there the next day. They advised me, oh, I think about 10 o'clock like later in the evening, that there were, the labour ward was full and there was no midwives available, not enough staff on to assist, so they would try again the next morning and then the next morning the same situation, the labour ward was still full and not enough staff on. Ms Graves' private obstetrician decided the only option her patient had was for her and her husband to drive four and a half hours to Hobart at the opposite end of the state. Ms Grave was induced there and baby Stella was born the next day, three days after her waters broke. Something needs to happen straight away. Like There's so many more mothers out there around this area that are in this situation, ready to give birth or you know coming up and not enough staff. We just want these issues addressed. More and more women, like Ms Grave, are coming forward talking about the impact maternity staff shortages are having on their births. Jacinta Chatwin had her son at the same Tasmanian hospital in 2021. I was induced with the gel on the Sunday night at about 6pm. They came back at 2am and said, we're going to have to stop your induction. Uh, we don't have enough staff to continue with it tonight. And in that time, I'd been contracting for the six hours strongly. Um, so I went into my birth the next day when I was induced again. I had no sleep. I was scared. I was stressed. 
any positive mind frame I had at this birth was completely gone. And for those yeah. people who might not have had an induction, what does it mean to kind of to have the induction stopped once it's already started? I had gel placed inside me to start the induction, which softens your cervix and gets everything going, starts contractions. Um, for every six hours until you're going to active labour, um, they're meant to put gel. Yeah, they continue with the gel every six hours. So the doctor said to me it might take three lots of gel to put you into labour, whereas I was stopped at the one and restart the next day. When Ms Chatwin did go into a birthing suite, she says the ward was so understaffed her partner had to assist. He was showing how to use the monitor, which monitors the baby's movement, my contractions and everything. He was showing how to use that. The midwife got called to other births, spontaneous birth, which does happen. Um, and he was telling me when to push when I couldn't feel the contractions. So he was actually watching the monitor. Instead of being my birthing partner and being supporting me, he was my midwife. He was holding my legs while I pushed. He was taking my blood pressure. The AMA has labelled maternity services at Tasmania's Northwest Private Hospital unsafe, mainly due to patient and staff concerns. Here's Dr Annette Barnett from the Tasmanian branch of the AMA earlier this month. The service is overwhelmed, has not sufficient doctors, it does not have sufficient midwives and it has been on bypass four times in the last few months. Peter Rutherford is the CEO of the Rural Doctors Association of Australia. She says maternity staffing is an issue right across the country and it's not just a midwife shortage. We see workforce shortages, particularly with our rural generalist obstetricians and as well as GP anaesthetists. Our members from across the country highlight additional locations where maternity services are under pressure. From a a Commonwealth government level, we need to look for leadership. We need to look at what are the obligations the states have in relation to providing safe maternity services in our rural hospitals. We need to get everyone on the same page so that we can create these collaborative models where mum and baby are absolutely at the centre. It will take political commitment as well to ensure that we stop this slow deterioration of rural maternity services across the country. Peter Rutherford from the Rural Doctors Association of Australia ending that story from Monika Champ. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. A decision Paul Gooder made on a night in October 1982 changed his life forever. After years of adjusting to life with a disability, Paul joined his local wheelchair basketball team. Aaron Semler has this story. I think it saved my life without exaggeration because I've never played a team sport before and never realised how great playing a team sport could be, like apart from your physical health, but also for your mental health. It's just such an endorphin rush and being part of a team just feels better. It makes you feel better. Gungaloo man Paul Gooder is a member of the Rockwheelers wheelchair basketball team based in central Queensland. I had my accident in 1982, in with a drunk driver, car accident, became paraplegic. I was also my best friend in that accident. He broke his neck, he became incomplete quadriplegic. He also plays wheelchair basketball too. Paul says adjusting to life with a disability has been difficult and for years he struggled with low self-confidence. But a few years ago, he tried something new. 
I went to a particular awards night in 2011 when I ran into the members of, the, at the time, the Rock Wheelers wheelchair basketball team who were also there. And it was just a chance meeting uh, the captain of the team at the time, uh, Jason Houlihan, and he convinced me to come the next Wednesday to, for a come and try and to sort of see if I liked it and, and I've just never stopped from there. Paul says gliding onto the court was like nothing he'd ever felt before. And I've never sat in a play chair before. That was a, just an awesome experience. I just didn't think that wheelchairs could move like that and so smoothly. And so I was hooked immediately. Head coach Jenny Anderson says mentoring players of all ages and abilities has been rewarding. I think our oldest player made maybe 62 and our youngest player is 12. We've got a really strong development program for people who haven't played before, but uh, particularly our junior players. Ellie Bloomfield has been playing wheelchair basketball for three years. She followed her sister, who lives with disability, onto the court. My sister started playing and I was like, came along to training and they invited me to play and I just fell in love. It gets a bit rough, but in the end it's really fun and it's always a good time. Ellie has a message about a common misconception of the sport. Only people in wheelchairs can play. That's completely false because I'm an able body myself. I chose to come play wheelchair basketball even though I could play able body, but I chose this because I love it. Wheelchair basketball has many similarities to the able bodied version of the sport, but players are assigned a point value depending on their level of impairment. Paul says it's a sport for everyone. And so we certainly don't discriminate against able-bodied people <laughs> yeah, uh, and actively encourage wheelchair basketball as an alternative sport. Coach Anderson says the benefits go far beyond the court. It's a real chance for social interaction and engagement with other people. Very important part of their lives. Very important part of my life as well. The Rock Wheelers travelled to the Suncoast Spinners Wheelchair Basketball Tournament last month and returned with A-grade silver medals. I think from a community perspective, you know, if there are any events on, just to come and be supportive, to see past the chair and to see the person in the chair and that they're just as competitive as any other sportsman who's out here playing basketball or football or whatever that sport may be. We like to, we like to play hard, we like to win, but we like to have fun as well. Paul says he's keen to see more juniors join the team. There's three of us in the team who are 60 this year and so definitely got mentor, if not grandfather, kind of roles within the team. And we love it. We love it. Paul Gooder, ending that story from Aaron Semler. In June 1978, a group of protesters walked along Oxford Street in Sydney, protesting against the oppression and discrimination of the LGBTQIA plus community. Instead of acceptance, they were met with truncheons. Nearly 45 years after the original protest dubbed the first Mardi Gras, two 78ers living in the regional town of Wagga Wagga in New South Wales are continuing to drive change. Shannon Corvo has the story from Wagga Wagga. Walking around the streets of Wagga Wagga, it's hard to miss Ray Goodlass. I wear a lot more bling than I did when I first arrived. There are the silver bangles, the rings on both hands, the chain round his neck, and to cap it all off, a sparkling rainbow sequined fedora. 
Ray's out and proud and at 77, he's earned all the sequins he can wear. 45 years ago, Ray couldn't have lived as publicly as he does now. Being gay back then was considered a moral failing, something done on the edges of society, a criminal behaviour dealt with by police. Two things would happen. They would either throw you in a paddy wagon and take you off to Darlinghurst Jail or they'd shuffle you down a side street having bust you around with their truncheons a bit. And that's what happened to me. On the night of June 24, 1978, a demonstration for gay rights in Darlinghurst turned violent when police brutally cracked down on the peaceful protesters. It was a watershed moment. Americans have Stonewall, Australians have the 78ers. Ray was there when the protests became violent and when the police were rounding up people. They um, went to the front of the march where most of the organisers were. It grabbed uh, 53 people, threw them in Darlinghurst jail. Denise McGrath was also there. And uh, the next day, all of their names, addresses, their jobs, they were all printed in the major newspapers. So those people that were outed, most of them were sacked. So you had from anyone from a wharfie to a professional to a university professor to a teacher. The first Mardi Gras from the 78ers, it's one of those splits in history. There's what came before and then what came after. And that's how it was for the people who were there on the ground, like Ray and Denise. The people who marched the march and took a stand. Not long after, Ray ended up in Wagga Wagga as a drama lecturer at Charles Sturt University, living out and proud in a regional community that was far more conservative than Sydney. You'd have to be careful. I mean, if you were in one of those bars I was talking about, you could publicly show affection. But walking down the streets, you, you, um, you wouldn't overdo it, put it that way. The drama department he helped to run became known as a safe space for queer people. I mean, I can certainly um, speak to sexualities and um, gender differences. Certainly the theatre was leading that um, movement, if I could call it that. Denise eventually moved back to Leeton in 2013, the town she fled as a closeted teenager. They're very quiet. Like in this country town, they're very quiet about They're not really out there like city people. I think it's the country town. I think if we were to be too explicit about who we were, there may be less tolerance. What activism looks like for Ray and Denise has shifted. Ray went into local politics and was Wagga's first openly gay deputy mayor. Denise launched Leeton's first pride group for the queer community and allies. The acceptance side of it's really good, but I'm sure that there are a lot of people out there that still are not happy with, with what's happening, but they're not out there troubling us with that speak. So that's a good thing. I'm happy with that. Around these communities, there are signs of just how far acceptance of queer people has come. I think the fact that Walker's Mardi Gras was initiated, set up and is run by a, a trans woman is really indicative of the fact 
that gender diversity has really taken hold. I'm hoping that we're able to demystify who we are, that we're just the girl or the bloke next door. None of us want anything different to the straight community. You know, we want to be loved. We want to have a little home to go home to, you know, somewhere safe that's ours. Love, safety, and the freedom to wear as much bling and as many sequins as you want. Shannon Corvo speaking there to Ray Goodless and Denise McGrath in Wagga Wagga. While many accommodation providers are struggling to stay open, an Instagram account celebrating the quintessential regional motel has struck a viral nerve and is bringing a new wave of snap-happy tourists. It's been such a success, it's now spawned a retro festival in the Victorian Wheatbelt community of Charlton. It was on this weekend and our reporter Tamara Clark went along and had a peek behind the curtain of the festival. Here we go. Partying in Charlton like it's 1969. Festival goers have flocked to the Victorian Wheat Belt town to celebrate its vintage feel. I'm Simon Austin, I play guitar in the Frente band. Ah, uh, it's just, it's got a really, everyone else is really excited to be here and it's got a great free and easy feeling. I, um, I have family uh, that uh, were in Bort for a long time, a uh, long time ago, and then uh, Walhalla and Wedderburn, places like that, so, and then they all went down to Melbourne eventually, but um, yeah, I've got that connection. And I didn't actually know a lot about it, but uh, Anne's has been here before. It's my first time performing, I came as a punter, um, so I've wanted to perform here because I think it's such a great setup. And when I came to see bands here, I was staying in the motel, which is a very special thing. To, I got my tickets like the day they were announced and you can just wander from your room straight into the beautiful lounge and, and see people play. So it was such a good setting. I'm very excited to be on the other side of it. Um, but yeah, I love the whole baby's breath vibe and come and get a palmer and play pool out the back. It's, it's, it's really old school. Katie Barry launched her Instagram account, OK Motels, to show off her love for country accommodation. And they've come in droves to celebrate with pool parties and plenty of 70s style fine dining. My name is Anne Barker and I am the current caretaker manager of the Charlton Motel. At the moment we've got the OK Motels uh, crew here. The motel's fully booked out with uh, lots and lots of people. It is good. We, uh, we were looking forward to having them here in October and because of the floods, of course, it all got cancelled. But uh, it's good to have them here. It's good to have a good vibe around the town, I think. I went for a walk last night and uh, everybody was inside. Our windows were shaking from the music and uh, everyone was having a really good time. It feels really good. I went for a walk. There's a one of the rooms has got a karaoke in it and uh, with a smoke machine and yeah everyone was having a really good time. Charlton is now looking to make the most of the Insta tourists who have been attracted by a period of architecture that's not always been celebrated. I'm Morgan from Melbourne. Uh, we came a year before or a year before that and heard it through a group of friends and yeah spread the word and have come on down. Yeah, right. What do you think about Charlton putting on this event? It seems uh, kind of different to how 
you do events in the metro areas. Uh, what's your first impression? Yeah, no, it's great. I think it's, yeah, like you said, different. Um, I think the small country town vibes are fun and nice to see someone new. Get out of Melbourne. My name's George Rose and I'm from Melbourne. Yeah, how did you hear about OK Motels? I think we've been following OK Motels on um, social media for a couple of years now and I uh, was in town this year and so decided to book some tickets and come along. Yeah, cool. And yeah. what do you think so far with the atmosphere? Oh my God, it's so much fun. Um, it's been such a, a really super fun weekend so far. Everyone, it, it's, everyone is super friendly and the whole town has just got behind the event. And um, yeah, the music's been really cool as well. But it's just been a really nice kind of adventure out here and camping and swimming and just, yeah, it's, it's been enjoyable. The power of Instagram, the OK Motels Music Festival, which was on in Charlton this weekend in Victoria. And that was Tamara Clark reporting. And that's Australia Wide for this Monday. Remember, you can podcast Australia Wide when you want to. Head to the ABC Listen app. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.